We are excited today because we are starting a new series and hopefully we won't be disrupted through COVID, but if we will, that's okay, we'll work it out. And the series is, it's inspired actually by a book called The Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson. Here it is. He's a New York pastor. Um, we've loved it, so we're going to base our series on, on this book. And we've named the title, This Must Be Stronger Than That. And the name of this title is inspired by a scene in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. And if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, he was a German pastor, he was a German theologian, and he was a significant figure in the resistance in the Nazi Germany movement. So the backstory of this is that in 1933, the threat of Nazi power was growing. And a lot of people were growing concerned and had fears that um, dur during the German church that they were actually compromising with the Nazi right. That instead of having their loyalties to Jesus, the loyalties was coming towards more Hitler. And in their weakness, um, they let the takeover of the church come over to the Nazi right church instead of German church. So observing in their lack of preparation and their weakness, Bonhoeffer decided that he would start up this underground seminary called the Confessing Church. And what this was was a new generation of pastors getting together to work on a deeper discipleship. And so here in this intentional Christian community, they did things like they studied together, they did prayer, they did confessions, they did shared rhythms together, all in this kind of small group in a place called Thinkenwald in Germany. And then what happened, oh, actually, if you know, the, his two books, Life Together and The Cost of Discipleship, was actually written in this underground seminary. But I word hearing out that what Bonhoeffer was doing, his friends had some questions. He was, they were, the friends were thinking, has he gone too far? Has good old Dietrich just gone too intense with this discipleship? So one of his friends that was living in Berlin at the time, he decided to make the trek to Thinkenwald. And so he came and observed the community as to what was going on and observed what they were doing. And unfortunately, his concern didn't um, change at all. He just thought, this is a little bit intense, Dietrich, what's happening here? So Dietrich said, come with me. He rode across a river. He climbed up on the hill. And on the top of the hill, in a distance, was an airport. And on the airport, there were fighter planes coming down and amassing troops. And the troops had this structured, regimented way of training. And that was the Nazi troops that was that was occurring there. And so as a point of contrast, Dietrich said to his friend, what is happening over here, my seminary, must be stronger than that. And John Tyson challenges the readers of this book that what was true in the 1930s is actually what's true here in the world today. That we live in a time when the church is compromising with the culture. And as a result, we are losing our influence. That we live in a time where the culture is becoming more shallow, more coarse and empty. And instead of becoming the beacon of light, this new paradigm that we're telling them people that we could live in, towards a new paradigm, the church is often silent and even accommodating. John Tyson says this in the book. What Bonhoeffer was doing with his disciples in Thinking World had to be stronger than what Hitler was training his army for. Discipleship must be stronger than cultural formation. Loyalty must be stronger than compromise. This must be stronger than that. So that's what our series is based on. And it's a bold statement to say that our church is compromising at the moment and that um, we are losing our influence. I don't know about you, but 
when I hear that, I go on the defence, and I'm like, we have done some great things in our generation in the previous times. You know, come on now, give us some credit. And I do believe it. Please don't hear me when I say that. I do believe we have made a significant difference. But the reality is, is that the church, and when I say the church, I mean the general sense of the term church, doesn't have the greatest reputation in the Western world at the moment. And unfortunately, rightfully so, in some parts. Now, disclaimer here. You may, it's kind of a bit solemn. It may feel that it's quite grim and bleak what I'm talking about at the moment. Um, I'm going to be talking a bit of reality because I believe if we're talking about this properly, we need to hold reality and hope hand in hand to give this a really good view. So at the moment, I'm going to speak a bit on reality. I haven't finished on that part yet, but there will be hope on the way, so stick with me. So John Tyson, he writes in the Beautiful Resistance book, the church that Jesus founded on his compassion and grace has at times failed to even resemble its founder. Celebrity pastor scandals, abuses in the Catholic Church, political hijacking, indifference to the humanitarian crisis of our day, including refugees, racism and environmentalism, materialism and complacency have caused many to leave the church. So that's John Tyson's view on the church. Let's have some statistics now. So in 2007, the Barna Group, which is one of America's leading polling organisations, it conducted a, sub, a survey for non-Christians. And who they asked was non-Christians of the age of 16 to 29 and their views on Christianity. So once Christianity held such a high value and role in society, this survey actually found that this shifted substantially decreased where only 16% of non-Christians said that they had a good impression of Christianity. So not only that, they pressed that a little bit further and said, well, what is it about Christianity that you've got negative perceptions on? And so this was their personal experiences of people that were Christians. So they found 87% judgmental, 85% hypocritical, 78% old-fashioned, 91% anti-homosexual. Now, when they pressed that last one, they said, is that just a theological difference in that what you believe in? And they said it was more than that. They found that it was an excessive contempt and unloving attitudes towards gays and lesbians. And you may say, well, at least that's 2007. That's 13 years ago. That's a long time ago. Unfortunately, um, the president of the Barna organisation, David Kinnaman, he said that he's been tracking these statistics and unfortunately, there hasn't been much change to it. Cool. So that's people's views of Christianity. Um, let's go to the dropout rate. We've done research on that too. So the dropout rate for people that have grown up in a Christian faith has increased to 64%. So that is anyone that has grown up in a Christian background, 64% of those have dropped out of church in their 20s at some point. At some point, they may come back. Some of them haven't. But what about those that stay, you may ask? Well, they did research on that as well. Now, this one um, was an amazing, huge study. Thousands and thousands of young people were surveyed all over the world, including New Zealand. And David Kinnaman actually did a book on this called Faith for Exiles, which is an amazing, amazing book on this um, amazing pie chart that I did. I'm proud of that one. Um, and so if you have kids that are young or... Uh, you're young yourself or just have interest in it, I would really recommend it. Faithful Exiles. Anyway, so they found that most 
18 to 29 year olds that had a Christian faith, that grew up in a Christian faith, they sat in these categories now. So, Greenie, 38% are the habitual churchgoers. So, these are people, they attend church on a regular basis, they may, may even go to a small group. However, they are missing critical elements of their faith, their belief, their practice, and their passion for their faith. 30%, these are the Reds, nomads. So they rarely attend church. These are people that may come to a Christmas event um, once every six to nine, uh, once every six to nine months it is. Uh, but anything else, they don't really identify with Christianity. They don't practice it. But they still are happy to click, um, click the Christian kind of survey poll to say they are Christians. Purple, the prodigals. These are people who no longer identify with Christianity in adulthood. And the 10%, the little blue one there, that's the resilient disciples. Those are people that regularly attend church, um, that they believe the Bible has authority in their life, and they actively pursue their faith outside of church. They have this rich and vibrant faith. 10%. So in that book, they go through what it is about that. So it's a great book. You okay? Still with me? Good. With smiles, it's okay. So following Jesus, it's never been easy in the history, but some people are saying that in the Western world at the moment, that it's actually becoming more difficult. We may not have a Hitler pressurising us. We may not have a, a certain group or person that's sabotaging our faith, but there is no doubt that one of the things that is so strong in our life, the force of culture is so strong in our life. Our culture is doing an incredible job at shaping us, forming us, and discipling us. It's alluring in nature because it feels good, it looks good, it's easy, and it's comfortable. And we often have no idea how much we're being formed by it. Ronald Rollheiser said this, Western culture today is so powerful and alluring that it often swallows us whole. Its beauty, power, and promise generally takes away both our breath and our perspective. The law of present salvation, money, sex, creativity, the good life, has, for the most part, entertained, amused, distracted, and numbed us into a state where we no longer have a perspective beyond that of our culture and its short-range soteriology. Another name of that is salvation. So there are a number of ways that culture can deceptively shape and disciple us. For example, the first one. From faith to doubt. Now, doubt in itself isn't a bad thing. Doubt, doubt can be a great thing in our faith where it's a stepping stone to deconstruct our faith, to work out what is actually true to deepen our faith. But in our culture, it appears that nobody knows if they can believe anything at all. They ask the question, how do we know if there is any truth? And we live in a culture where cynicism and doubt is almost a value. David Kinnaman in the Faithful Exiles book said this, We live in a world rampant by scepticism about Christianity and the Bible. Hyper-rationalism and pop culture atheism undercut belief. So whether you feel it or not, society is becoming more opposed to faith because they see it as irrational. They see the Bible as oppressive and believing in one God is nearly becoming immoral. 
The next one, from self-sacrifice to self-fulfillment. So all around us, there's um, propaganda and advertising and messaging bombarding us to say, you are placed on this earth to live your best life, to consume everything, to get the best experiences, just follow whatever makes you happy. And then we become consumers instead of contributors because our life and our longings are formed around a vision of personal fulfillment at all costs. So we go to our communities, we go to our workplaces, we go to our churches, and we ask one question, what can we get out of it? And in contrast, Jesus promoted sacrificial love for others, laying down our lives for others, is how our deep soul desires are actually met. Next one, from community to individualism. So my father-in-law, Rob, Rob's dad, he has lived on the same road his whole life, Wiseman Road in Cambridge. He has only had two jobs. And for the most part, his friends and family network has been a short distance away from him. And that's pretty crazy to most of us to hear that story. But for that generation and the generation probably above, it wasn't really that abnormal. And hearing this, even though it sounds crazy, there is a simplistic and beautiful way of community that he does that weaves his life amongst others, where he does sharing of his resources, his time and his energy, his daily life with those that are around him. They see the good and the bad, I guess, of each other. And in contrast, we do this. We move jobs, we move cities, we move churches, and we move friendships so fast that we don't know how to have deep roots down. So we don't get to know our neighbours very well. We don't have a rich community because the quality of time just hasn't been invested into. And when hard times come, maybe, maybe for some of you like this year, we don't have the beauty of having a community to lean on that we can be real and honest with which is a gift that God originally had in mind for us. Next one, from rest to exhaustion. Speed and efficiency underpin almost every element of our culture. So some of you may be feeling it hard to focus on me at the moment because focusing on one thing is actually quite hard for you. Because who reads or does one thing, at, like who reads a book at the moment? Is anyone reading one book? It's actually quite a bit of it. I should use a different analogy. This was the same one. <laughs> okay, but the thing is, the confession, it leads on to my confession part, is that um, when I want to read a book, what I do is I buy it on an audiobook so that I can do something at the same time. So if I have kids, I can drive and listen or make a dinner at the same time as I'm listening to a book. But not only that, I put it on at least 1.5 times speed so I can listen to it faster. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Get there faster. Do it faster so I can read another book. No, yeah, that doesn't really. So anyway, I was reading a US article that says this. It was written by a psychologist. Our society is caught in a chaotic, frenzied spiral of a new addiction. Just like any addiction, people are out of control in their behaviours, feelings and thinking. Yet they believe they are normal. Fast at any cost is the mantra of a stressed and de-stressed American society today. Overscheduling and double booking have been signs of progress and belonging. Practices that used to cause embarrassment became proudly rationalised as multitasking. A new skill to master. You juggled 10 plates while you brag about your 90-hour week and you pop your ambient to get to sleep. This is success in our society now. 
And some of us are so tired of trying to keep up with everything because we want to be the best in our jobs. We want to be the best um, in our roles, such as a mother or a husband or a, a friend or a boyfriend. Uh, you want to get the most things. You want to work hard to get your house and your holiday and the things that you're after. And you also, at the same time, want to keep in shape. So you're trying to juggle all these things. And in the meantime, you're exhausted. You don't have any margin in your life for the things of God, including rest. Rest of, of the things of God. Rest is actually what God wants for your life. From conversation to scrolling. There is growing concern that due to smartphones, we are becoming more and more less present to our environment, less interactions with strangers, and less deep and meaningful conversations with the people that we know. So much so that some people are actually worried about our younger generation being able to actually have face-to-face -face conversations with people because they're so used to converse, um, doing conversations through smartphones, they don't know how to do small talk anymore or transitioning into another conversation. And this includes conversations surrounding our faith. Faith for Exiles, again, here it is, says this. Deep spiritual longings that should be cultivated and matured are choked to death by binging on TV, social media scrolling, and immersive gaming. Many of us today turn to our devices to help us make sense of the world. Young people especially use their screens in their pockets as counsellors, entertainers, and even sex educators. Why build up the courage to have what will likely be an awkward conversation with a parent, pastor, or teacher where you can just ask your phone and no one else will be the wiser? Yes, there's the rub. Instant access to information is not wisdom. Feeling good? Okay. So this isn't about beating ourselves up. Culture in itself isn't a bad thing. There is so much about what I love about culture. And I was thinking about the three things that I love about culture most at the moment that just top of my head when I thought about it was I can contact my friends overseas and not have to write a letter and wait for how many weeks to get it back. I can use my um, FaceTime and see my girls when I'm away and see their faces when I miss them. And the third and most important is that I can track my husband on Find My App. So I know when he says he's coming home, he actually is and still not at work. It's a great one. So it's not about being against culture. It's about being aware of the world that which we are living in. Because one of the saddest things about being seduced by culture is this. It doesn't do what it promises to do. It doesn't satisfy us. It may feel good in the short term, but in the long term, it's not. Herman Bavink said this, the more abundantly the benefits of civilization come streaming our way, the emptier our life becomes. With all its wealth and power, it only shows that the human heart in which God has put eternity is so huge that all the world is too small to satisfy it. So as Jesus follows, we are called to be set apart, transformed into his image, not the culture's image. Jesus says this in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So here Jesus is using a metaphor. He's saying that salt... When you spread it onto meat, salt brings out the meat's best flavours. It's real tasty. And the other element of salt 
is that it's a preservative. It prevents meat from decaying. So, but only if it remains sold. It has to be chemically different to the meat itself. So here Jesus is saying to the disciples that you must be dispersed in society, not to remove yourself away from it, kind of be like, society. You're supposed to be in it, but bringing out the best in it and also to prevent it from its worst tendencies, but only if it remains different. We are called to be different. So the aim of the series it isn't to become fearful and despise the culture out there, but to evaluate what's off balance, what needs more work in ourselves and in the church, what needs to be stronger. And here's the hope part. That even though John Tyson in that quote said, we have failed to even resemble the founder, that we have failed at times to represent Jesus, the hope is this, that we are still the covenant people of God. The covenant just means there is a promise to a relationship with somebody. In various times in scripture, Jesus gives a metaphor for his people, the church, that we are his bride and he is a groom. The church is the bride of Christ. So Jesus doesn't view us, the church, you or me, in this doctrinal, moral or ethical lens. He views us as a covenant lens. So for better or for worse, he remains faithful and committed and loving towards us. And he isn't committed to the church because he has to be. He is committed because he wants to be. Exodus 19.5 says, You are my treasured possession. Church is his treasured possession. So no matter how many times we actually feel more like the promiscuous bride, the one that runs off and tries to get love from elsewhere, Jesus and God continually seeks out and extends his love and grace to us. He welcomes us home. He washes us in a way and he showers us with love. God will never give up on his church. And the promise has always been the same, that he can change our brokenness into beauty. The question for us is this, though. Will we respond to Jesus' passion for us and be faithful in our generation? Not serving God out of religious duty, out of ambition and out of guilt, but out of love. And Jesus invites every single one of us to follow him. No doubt there will be a cost. No doubt we will probably be against culture at times and people won't understand us. But if we want to be the salt and light, if we want to be that 10%, the resilient disciples, then we are called to be more through Jesus' formation than culture's formation. So throughout this series, we are going to be discussing some behaviours, some heart postures, some practices, and we are going to ask and say, this must be stronger than that. Jesus' way must be stronger than culture's way. So we're asking the question, are we being shaped into the image of Christ or the image of the world in the areas of compassion, in the image of um, forgiveness and loving, honouring each other? Sound good? So that's our series. That's what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks and there's going to be some different voices that's going to talk as well, which we're excited about. So if you're happy to, if you can stand and we'll pray together and then we can start our Sunday. Father, we thank you that you are an awesome, faithful and loving God.
that you have never given up on us. And we just ask that you continually redeem us, Lord. You continually change our brokenness into beauty. Lord, do that in an individual sense. Do that within our community at Central Vineyard and do that church worldwide, Father. That we can rely on you, that we can depend on you rather than other things. That our faith isn't going to be coarse and shallow and empty, but is going to be meaningful and deep. And Lord, we um, step into that invitation that you want us to have, Lord, into the arms of a loving Father. Lord, help us to realise this. Help us to realise the invitation is actually a loving God rather than a judgmental one. And unite us, Father, as a community. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.